I know you're excited, Reed, because Facebook just released their virtual meeting rooms. Ah, uh, yes. Also known as Second Life. I don't understand. Like, so Zoom doesn't work anymore. Like, we can't do Zoom or Teams or anything. We got to now have a family guy looking virtual get together. Mark Zuckerberg said that it's completely different because it really is an, a quote unquote embodied intranet that you're inside of rather than just looking at. And so people are just going to wear the VR glasses like around the unit and like participate in the intranet. It's like, man, I haven't seen you in months. No, no, no. I've virtually rounded on you last Thursday. I think we're just one step away from that movie, Tron. More like Ralph breaks the internet. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to Touchpoint. Welcome to episode number 238. That's 238 on the dial. I am Reed Smith. That is Chris Boyer. Hey, Reed. It's unfortunate I can't see you through my virtual reality goggles right now. Well, here we are for yet another episode of Touchpoint and uh, excited (laughs) about this one. I think, you know, anytime we can talk about transformation, innovation, things like that, I think those are neat topics. Got a great interview today as well. And so excited to jump into this one. Before we do, however, just a quick plug for the website, touchpoint.health, if you will. You can navigate over there, and what that will do is allow you to understand what in the world you're listening to, both this actual show and the episode specific to today. You'll see show notes and all that kind of fun stuff, which there's a couple of good resources from the interview that we'll get to a little bit later. But you can also find out more about Touchpoint, the network. So lots of other shows, show hosts, topics, all kinds of fun stuff. While you're there, up in the top navigation, you'll see something called the TPS report. Would encourage you, if you would, to sign up for that. You click there, give us your name, email address. That's really about it. And we will send you one email, count them one, each Monday morning, five articles to start off your week. That's it. Five articles to start your week. Promise not to spam you. It's a great resource. All these uh, pieces of content are uh, sourced by our show host. Matter of fact, we got a nice note from our friend Joe Doyle today on Twitter about uh, that he keeps our email at the top of his inbox each week, looks out for it. So that was uh, that was neat. Appreciate the support there. But do that. Touchpoint.health. Sign up for the TPS report. We're going to take a quick pause while you do that or make a note to do it later. I'll just trust you on that. And uh, we'll be back with today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. 
And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. Reed, as you mentioned, we're going to be talking today about digital transformation, a very popular topic that we like to talk about, isn't it? It is. It's an interesting topic because it means a lot of things to a lot of different people. I immediately go to the Princess Bride every time we get to terminology like this. <laughs> but yeah, I think this is an interesting one. Something that certainly over the last year and a half, we've continued to see the need even now of people really investing in this area, in this space. When you talk about digital transformation, it takes a lot of things, not just the technology and the good thoughts around it. We'll dive into an article that I found on CIO.com. It's called Seven Skills of Successful Digital Leaders, and it talks about the requirements of strong leadership to help organizations through digital transformation. And we, it's been a while since we talked about you know, personal traits, what, what people need to bring to the table. I thought it might be a good way to start off the conversation today. Let's do it. Um, you know, the first thing that they really call out in here is that effective digital transformation requires strong leadership. I mean, that's obviously true for a lot of topics, certainly. But if you're really trying to evolve something, uh, move something forward, change the way things are done, then yes, strong leadership is is certainly top of the list. But so then what does that mean, strong leadership? So in this article, which uh, we link to in the show notes, you should go check it out. They actually talked to CIOs across many different industries that have faced digital transformation through the pandemic. And they kind of inquired uh, of them, what did it take to get through the transformation? And they identified these seven traits. Seven traits. First one adaptability. Obviously, you probably didn't need a lot of explanation. I'm sure this is pretty obvious uh, of what this means, especially over the last uh, 18 months or so. But they talk about you know this ability to be able to move, change, duck, bob, you know, <laughs> that kind of a thing. But, you know, that being able to adapt has really become a skill set uh, during this time. They also go on to say here that digital initiatives are never ending. Mm-hmm. Meaning that, you know, when you think you're actually at the end of one digital project, you're actually on your way to the next digital project. So adaptability is not only being able to kind of duck, weave and bob, you know, around things that come along your way, but it's also being able to then adapt very quickly, get on to the next project at hand. You know, one thing they call in here, which I think is really interesting. So sh- certainly the adaptability relates to technology shifts and you know the, those you know strategies and those types of things and they call those out but one in here which i think is really important and sometimes overlooked is uh you know a, a real facet of adaptability being how you communicate i would agree i mean that's you know being able to think on your feet sometimes they say or being able to very quickly present uh, information as it's rapidly changing, which kind of leads a little bit to the second trait that they've identified. And let's, if you're keeping track at home, check off to see if you're capable of navigating uncertainty. I say that a lot to my team lately, right? That when we're going through digital change and transformation, there's a lot of vagueness that occurs. There's a lot of things that we're not really sure of. Maybe we don't even know like what's around the next corner. And the article reasserts that by saying part of being adaptable means being able to cope when things don't go as expected 
And a successful CIO is happy to start on digital journeys where the endpoint is not 100% clear where they're going to go. Got to be flexible, certainly. But part of that, I think, where it makes it a little bit easier to navigate is this third point, which is uh, being adept at building relationships. They talk about the fact that it's very critical to understand who the stakeholders are and, and then you know wh- how they benefit. That transformation is fundamentally about relationships. I would argue that that's probably one of the hardest but most rewarding things to do in any kind of leadership position in healthcare is to understand who the stakeholders are and what they seek to gain from the work that you're doing. Part of this, this being adept at building relationships means having contextual awareness and learning to meet business colleagues where they are and speak their language. I think before I learned it as being able to code shift, be able to start talking in things that they see as valuable when you're in meetings, etc. It's not only your internal partners, but it's also your technology partners that you're working with. You have to be able to effectively code shift all the time to communicate with them more effectively and build those relationships. And I think that leads right to the next one, right, Reed, which is excellent communication. Well, there you go. We mentioned it earlier, the skill in only being able to clearly communicate. I think that's important, certainly for goals, tactics, you know, those types of things, but even just day to day, you know, how you communicate in this particular context, the role that digital transformation is playing is really, really important. That means, though, is like helping to establish like a solid digital mindset and using language to help drive that understanding, collaboration, and even ownership of those different elements. You know, when you think about like digital transformation, teams that regularly meet on this, they do go over those deliverables and they review data metrics and, you know, kind of build the project plan and kind of keep track of all of that. That is very important for your team-based communication. But another key part of that communication is be able to negotiate with those internal or even external partners that are going to be successful to your ongoing transformation. So next on the list is empathy. That's interesting. We don't talk about empathy a lot. I know we had an article about it in one of the recent uh, TPS reports, but Empathy is interesting. You know, the ability to put yourself in, in, in someone else's shoes, a stakeholder, a client, you know, whatever that may be, or whoever that may be, that allows you to maybe better manage, communicate, certainly, you know, the adaptability and some of the things that we spoke to earlier. But if you can put yourself on kind of the other end of the equation, uh, sometimes that really helps in this idea of transformation. I think empathy is so critical Because with empathy, you're not trying to take solutions and find problems. Instead, you're trying to find and understand the problems and then co-create solutions, as they say. And that, again, these seem to all build on top of each other, Read these traits. But as I think about it, it totally makes sense. Another trait is the capability to cultivate a culture of collaboration. Okay, let me say that again, because there's a lot of C's in that sentence. Capable of cultivating a culture of collaboration. I think that was on Wheel of Fortune. (laughs) I like to buy a vowel. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's interesting. Um, But, you know, empowering teams, encouraging experimentation, incentivizing collaboration, all of that helps you to measure the performance of a team against, you know, these outcomes and the outcomes are not IT metrics, they're business outcomes, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And it, 
I, I think what's interesting is they talk in here even a little further about these core tactics. There's three core tactics about you know creating this type of culture, promoting employee-driven uh, ideas. Uh, that that's an interesting one, right? Launching with goals and results in mind. You know, everything's clearly defined and outlined. And then finally, helping employees gain access to information and capabilities to shorten the learning cycle. So again, a lot, you know, promoting a, a way that you know employees can drive ideas forward, uh, having clear goals in mind, and then uh, being able to make sure folks can find the resources they need. You know, it's funny as we talk about these things, it's so clear, right, that these things are very important to a good digital transformation leader. But they seem eerily reminiscent of like some of the things that we say in order to be good at marketing or to be good at communications. I think that it's all kind of falling together, which kind of leads to the last point, which also reiterated that for me, which is the last trait, compelling storytelling. And they say, while CIOs are fanatical about creating technology that makes a measurable difference to the bottom line, they know they can only gain influence if they speak the language of the board or the executives. What that means is, is like, you know, pulling all of this digital transformation story together. So it shows the impact on market share, on growth, risk, you know, entry into new markets, all of those things that are on the agenda of boards across the world, you got to frame your entire digital transformation as having an impact on that at the bottom line. One interesting piece here that kind of rounds this out relative to storytelling is something that may be a little counterintuitive, but the fact that great work does not always speak for itself. And so that you need to pair it with a great narrative. Um, and that's really how you get people's attention. Mm, there you go. Wow. That's really fascinating. So as we're all taking a pause to orient ourselves against these seven traits that outline and make sure that we are representing those and emulate those, we'll take a pause here, Reed. And then when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about a particular use case at a hospital here in the United States that did some phenomenal things around digital transformation and the approach they took around that. And then we'll end it out with a, a question about how is digital transformation impacting provider burnout? We'll do that right after this break. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Matson of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. Let's dive back in here. We got a couple of articles before we get to uh, today's interview, and, and I think these are really interesting to take it from kind of the, the idea of skills, right, and like kind of what you need to walk through a transformation to really what happened. You know, how does this play out in some cases? So, first article, uh, Chris, that we have here is from uh, Healthcare IT News, but how Geisinger. Make governance a key to its digital transformation is the name of the article. 
Yeah, and this came from a presentation that was given at at, uh, at Hims just recently. Mm-hmm. But uh, they outlined what they did in 2020. Geisinger they launched a multi year digital transformation program to really transform patient and caregiver experiences. And they wanted to, you know, ensure that they're bringing in best in class technology solutions and innovation across their entire digital ecosystem. And it also included, you know, this transformation of IT infrastructure to support some digital health experiences. But they did this really interesting thing, Reed. They did. So they they you know implement the roadmap. They say they establish what they're calling the Digital Transformation Office, the DTO. It's a three-letter acronym. They didn't do that. I just made that part up. Anyway, but they they have this digital transformation office now that over that's overseeing the implementation of the roadmap. So some way to provide, you know, which I think is really important, provide a centralized governance um, structure. Governance. That's the important piece here, right? Yep. Digital transformation programs require much more coordination among a variety of stakeholders across the organization, as you can imagine. This centralized approach, the DTO, which I really like. And by the way, when you said DTO, isn't that the group that's saying uh, you ain't seen nothing yet? Oh, no, that's BTO, right? Yeah, I think I think DTO was a, a tag team wrestling group. Oh, there you go. Anyway. The early 90s. Yeah. Nonetheless, Geisinger's DTO created the centralized approach to ensure the multiple initiatives are were in sync and moving forward in kind of a lockstep. Makes total sense. That's interesting. And I think, you know, we see it sometimes from a project standpoint, right? You have like a governance committee or something like that. But I think this is really interesting to see it in more of a formalized fashion that's probably going to be there for a period of time. We've seen this with what other areas like uh, patient experience and some of those types of things. And so I think I think this this makes a ton of sense. It sure does. And, they, you know, they kind of looked at their organization that, you know, first of all, they kind of broke it out as the front end being the digital front door initiatives, which uh, I think a lot of we've talked about before here. And then sort of the back end initiatives that are important around integration, data standardization, interoperability, those sorts of things. But together, you know, as they look at all of this, they were really trying to develop like this overall governance approach and from that, developed this three to five year horizon to identify key priorities in a business case. So, um, you know, if you're thinking about digital transformation, you know, one of the things you, you really can do, Reed, is you should think about how do you have this shared governance model? And that allows you to kind of re-emphasize those seven traits we talked about before the break. This is a great example. And and we'll, we'll link to some of this information again, came from, from HIMSS. Um, last week, but that's a great call out. I think the next article, which is, which is interesting. Um, this is actually from mobihealthnews.com. It's called is digital transformation in healthcare contributing to provider burnout. So we've talked a lot about this. I say we have, I, you know, Dr. V on the network certainly has and things like that, but the, you know, there's no real secret certainly that, that there's a you know burnout problem, and there there was even pre-pandemic, I think, for a lot of folks. And, and it says in here that prior to the pandemic, forty-two percent of physicians reported being burned out. So that's that's a big number. You, you can only imagine, you know, that you know since right. So it's only added to the issue. So they say in here that since forty-nine percent of physicians say they felt burned out. And we, we, Gerard, we at Gerard have done a little bit of study around this early in the pandemic. And we, we did see where 
you know, we had people that were considering changing careers that weren't before the pandemic and things like that. I mean, it's just becoming a lot, right? Yeah, it is becoming a lot. And one of the factors that this article kind of proposes is that digital transformation, although it has this lofty goal of being used to, you know, help us be more efficient and uh, address the new customer mindset and kind of get us through the the pandemic to all this whole bright, bold new future. They actually think that that might actually be leading a little bit to the burnout problem. So they interviewed a couple of people that, you know, are representative of providers across many different organizations in the U.S. And here's some of the interesting things that they said. So the first is Azil Erikan, who's the director of ambulatory HR services at Stanford Children's Health, said, we have emails, we have Slack and Teams, and people message us and ask us things at any time of the day. So... There is an issue with disconnecting or being able to disconnect in all of the digital domains. And that's leading a little bit to this burnout feeling, right? That now suddenly you have all these tools where you have to communicate. And I think even Dr. V alluded to it a little bit in his, his last newsletter that he sent out about you know telehealth being a potentially part of that as well. I think so. And so let's just couple that with some virtual reality and Facebook should solve all the, all the problems. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and what they also say in here that while technology can at times make workflows easier for providers, it can also put unfair expectations on them. So, uh, you know, another call out here from, you know, Dr. Jennifer uh, Lightdale. She's the vice chair uh, of the Department of Pediatrics at, at uh, UMass Memorial Children's Medical Center. Yeah, she said that, you know, because of this, patients are now expecting that they can reach her through a portal and get information very quickly. I mean, th- that's changed, right? And that's something that she's not prepared for in, in order to support this. So it's really interesting. And while there is this promise of being able to get all this information and maybe having some kind of like, like nice artificial intelligence be able to maybe even answer those questions beforehand, in this particular case, she's still kind of catching up to the new technology. And that's putting a toll on her. And, and other clinicians that she would imagine she uh, she proposes. Yeah, I mean, she even says it. It appears as though these burned out providers is it's just people just aren't enjoying being at work, right? And, and that that becomes the problem. The call out here, which I think is is probably very real, that eventually that turns into medical errors, uh, just poor care in general for patients. You know, we're just you know the product, if you will, is just not not what you know we think it should be or used to or whatnot. Yeah, it just reminds me of like at the early stages when we were suddenly going to telehealth and all the providers were going out to telehealth, they would report back, you know, to me and to others that, you know, they spent most of their time helping their patients troubleshoot how to use these technologies, not even taking advantage of the fact that it's telehealth, right? It's just how do you start it up? Well, I think that what we're going to see as we get through sort of digital transformation, that's going to have a profound impact on many uh, clinicians as they go through sort of the ad- adaptation and in, uh, and usage of these tools to eventually see benefits on the other end. I think we just need to be very, very careful that we're listening to our providers and allowing them to be part of this digital transformation conversation. Well, speaking of transformation... Yeah, I think that's a very interesting topic. We've talked a lot about it today. Uh, I had a chance to sit down here recently with Tom Keesaw. Um, He is a uh, director 
and runs uh, Chartist Digital, which is um, you know kind of their digital uh, think tank and from the Chartist Group. Really, really smart guy. Also participated in Hims last week as part of the Future of Healthcare event. Talked to him a little bit about a thought leadership piece that they came out with called uh, "Healthcare's Digital Revolution." It's time to move beyond investment to transformation. So we'll take a brief pause right here. We'll come back uh, hear from Tom. I think he's got some uh, some great points and some things as we think about moving down this path that will be uh, very actionable for us. So we'll do that right after. All right, and we're back, and I am here today with Tom Keesaw from Chartist. Thanks for uh, thanks for hopping on for a few minutes. Yeah, thanks for having me. Reed. So, uh, I guess a week ago, week and a half ago, something like that, uh, saw the uh, you know kind of thought leadership piece that you guys put out. Uh, actually, it was on August the 11th uh, on the Chartist Group's website, Chartist.com. We'll, we'll link to this, but it was titled "Healthcare's Digital Revolution." It's time to move beyond investment to transformation. And this kind of goes hand in hand with thought leadership and, and some insights, a presentation that you guys were doing at, uh, at HIMS, but thought it'd be interesting to kind of get you on and, and talk through this. Before we do, though, those that are listening may or may not be familiar with Chartis, with you, maybe just a quick elevator pitch of who you guys are, what you do, what you do, all that kind of fun stuff. So I'm Tom Keese. I'm a senior partner with the Chartist Group. We're a management services firm that exclusively serves the healthcare delivery domain. So this is all we do day in, day out. Our entire firm, 550 plus people uh, advising across really all elements of healthcare delivery, healthcare transformation. And our mission is principally focused on materially improving healthcare. That's something that you know we, we strongly believe in and obviously aligns with our clients' missions on, on the commitments to their communities and the people around them. Uh, and I lead our Chartist Digital Business Unit, so specifically focused around healthcare transformation and digital enablement of healthcare transformation. Here recently, as we record this, I guess about a week ago or so, was the uh, the, the future of healthcare event, right? Is part of HIMS, and you guys did a survey of about 200 folks, and I think that's kind of what we'll dig into. But but kind of before we get to those points, any any real kind of high level, like what what was the point of the survey? Why did y'all do this? I mean, obviously there was some thought leadership to be had, but uh, what, what were you guys kind of driving towards or, or looking to kind of figure out? Yeah, it was part of a program that we we partnered with HIMS on. It's part of a the HIMS Research Trust, and it looked at four discrete constituencies in healthcare. So it looked at health system executives kind of representing health systems broadly. It looked at physicians, it looked at uh, payers, and then it looked at healthcare consumers. And each one of those four uh, sub-segments, there was research conducted with stakeholders to understand their perspectives about discrete topics related to uh, digital health, artificial intelligence, and kind of financial health you know, in the context of the individual. So in the health system executive domain, that's obviously the financial health of the health system. Uh, and so we all connect, conducted different areas of focused research, and and Chartis led the work on health system executives. Well, a couple of top lines here, which uh, it says nearly half of the respondents cite digital as a top priority. That's good, I guess. Maybe, maybe it should be more. I, I don't know. But what were some of those other kind of top line findings that good, bad, thought would maybe be different? 
Yeah, I think the good news, the, the byline to the headline, you know, effectively half see it as a top priority. The other half see it as an enabling capability to, to drive business. So even though they may not say it is the most important thing, 95% plus said it's, it's important. It's either an enabler or it's one of many uh, priorities of the health system that we have to solve for. So everyone sees it. I think one of the consistent points that we heard from the survey was no one really feels like they're doing as good as they need to do, as well as they mm. need to do. They're doing a good job. They're trying. They're focused on it. They made enormous uh, gains during the context of the pandemic, but they didn't really do it the way they wanted to do it. They're now seeing some of their gains you know, be given back as, as we continue to push into these later phases and stages of, of the pandemic. And so they're trying to get their arms around, how do we make this something that is more integrated and more systemically part of our care delivery strategy, as opposed to, you know, we turned it on in a few days when the pandemic first spiked and shut down in-person visits. Now we're living in a world where we've got in-person visits, virtual visits. We've got a whole host of competitors now that have exploded onto the scene through a lot of private equity investment and corporate investment outside of the traditional domain. And so what we're hearing from, from our survey respondents was, We've done some things that kind of check the box on things like virtual care. We need to do more. And it's really internally focused. That was the other key takeaway is it's not about consumer demand. It's not about technology, interestingly. It's really about internal process and internal culture to adopt the, the real change that digital presents. That's interesting. So I, th- I guess, and this is kind of an assumption, I guess, but at the beginning of the pandemic, like to your point, I don't know they might really have a choice right? It was like, we, we have to, you know, figure it out. I, you know, some of the, the ways we in not doing it exactly like we wanted to, I think is an interesting, uh, kind of verbatim there because yeah, I mean, there were people using Slack or teams or zoom yeah. or whatever. Again, I, I think just cause it was like, look, I don't know that we have a choice here, but given the choice, I'm not sure that's the path somebody would have gone necessarily. And that may be an overly simplistic, uh, example and, and I think, I don't know, I, maybe the consumer was a little more forgiving at the time too. You know, it was just kind of like, hey, this is, and it felt temporary, you know, like, oh, well, we're not going to do this forever, you know, kind of, and now we're doing it forever. Um, <laughs> it feels like another piece in here though, and I think kind of dovetails into that is, you know, th- this idea that everything's still kind of in beta, it, it was interesting. So the data certainly supported that. Both the so the Hims team actually led the research on consumers. They want it. They want more. But I think some of the work, even some of the Gerard uh, uh, studies, had shown this is an expectation now. I think the in the early days of the pandemic, when the option was you're not going to get care or we'll figure out this virtual thing, I think you're right. People were more accommodating, more willing to accept it. There were lots of stories that we were hearing from clients about the manual workarounds, right? Really taking the physical process of the clinic experience and exactly duplicating it in virtual, not advancing it, not really changing anything. You know, pre-calls with the patient ahead of time prior to the actual clinical interaction. So highly inefficient, completely unscalable. You know, everyone was scrambling to do what they could do. Um, An interesting thing, a lot of the virtual visits were actually tele-virtual visits, not digital virtual visits. So you know, and again, the data conflates those to some degree, it doesn't specify the modality, it just mentions that it's virtual. And so now as consumers have become really accustomed to every component of their life being something that can be virtualized, 
we're seeing a different expectation. And, and again, the, the non-provider domain has adapted more quickly to be able to provide better experience and more simplified experiences. One of my favorite examples is there are a lot of health systems out there to this day that you can do a virtual visit, but you can't schedule that virtual visit online. You have to call and talk to somebody to schedule your virtual visit. I don't know. That doesn't, doesn't seem entirely helpful. Um, <laughs> exactly. A little bit of a paradox there about our digital sophistication. Well, I, I think, again, this article, I think, is really good and kind of lays some things out. And so we won't, we won't exhaustively go through every point here. But you mentioned in here that there's, there's very little margin for error. Like, what, what, is, what does that mean? Like, what, what does that mean for us practically? Yeah, well, one theme we heard loud and clear was this is an important initiative, whether it's the most important or one of many, it's important. Everyone acknowledged that. Um, everyone acknowledged they were going to have to invest more in digital, right? So again, maybe not particularly earth shattering. What was interesting, though, is they didn't see any reduction in investment in things like facilities. They didn't see an, a reduction in investment in clinicians. And, and as obviously, as we all grapple with a clinician shortfall right now in all areas, nursing, you know, med techs, rehab, there, there's a gap that's causing greater investment. And it, it all kind of plays into this on every front, we need to do more. And we ask how much more give us a sense of how much investment we're talking about. And, you know, a majority of the respondents were saying over $10 million in investment to be able to do these digital initiatives they had on the on the radar, which maybe doesn't sound like a you know, jaw dropping amount. I mean, it's a big chunk of any health systems budget when you think about $10 million, but small in the context of these, some of these multi-billion dollar health systems. But that's while also continuing to pay more in payroll, higher uh, personnel expenses in a constrained supply, continuing to invest in the facilities. And no one sees a windfall of revenue growth coming, right? And so at the end of the day, if we don't put more rigor and more structure around tracking against moving the needle on strategic investments and tracking return on investment, these aren't just table stakes. So you can just throw them out there and do them. You need to actually be able to demonstrate a return. How does that, and you go into this a little bit, but you know, this idea of aligning you know, digital with those strategic goals. Because again, I think historically, I'm even talking about digital marketing or what anything digital related, it was, uh, yeah, let's try that, you know, or some sort of marked com tech or something like that. It was just kind of this siloed thing that sat there. Um, so how, how do we, you know, what does that look like? Like what, what is aligning with strategic goals really mean? Well, this is a, the danger of digital is that digital is everything, right? There's not a single function in healthcare delivery that can't have a benefit from something digital. And so what we find a lot of health systems doing is, you know, trying to advance the ball on every front and they're doing it in small iterative steps. The problem is a lot of those investments don't yield a return. And actually one you talked about, some of the, the marketing outreach initiatives are kind of legacy capabilities, but they should be able to demonstrate real tangible value, right? If those initiatives were prioritized around areas of market opportunity, market growth, areas where we know patients don't follow care protocols the way they should, you know, it's a great example of you know, cancer patients, women, that, after they complete their therapy, there's a study that came out in oncology a few years ago, 20% of them don't do the prescribed follow-up after their completion of therapy. And you know, that means greater risk of advanced remission, you know, more deaths, more, more, more people that, don't, that die that shouldn't. That's part of our responsibility as a health system to A, advance the health of our communities. But it's also 
revenue opportunity, right? We can provide better care. We can get to them sooner. And then if they do need care, we can provide it more effectively, quickly, and get a better clinical outcome. And so being able to say, this is where we have a capability or an opportunity that's uniquely strong, how do we then organize our efforts to drive the right kind of engagement? And, and really, marketing is, in, in historical context, hasn't been a driver in a lot of health system executive kind of planning circles. And it really has to be now, right? It is a powerful way to drive new top line revenue when it's integrated into that planning process around the priorities. Well, and that's, we've talked about this on the podcast for years now at this point, but that's because we've never had marketing and we've had advertising departments. We've never had marketing departments. And I think there's, you know, we call them, (laughs) it's just a little bit of a confusion there around really what is it that we do? We've never been asked about like, hey, where should we build the next freestanding ER? Like marketing's not in that conversation or anything around, you know, pricing transparency or charge masters or strategic planning or we're never in any of those conversations and maybe that's our own fault or partially our own fault, but you know, we've been community outreach and advertising. I mean, that that's, you know, sponsorships, you know, stuff like that, you know, for, for the vast majority of the time. Anyway, it's an interesting kind of interesting place. We find ourselves uh, another opportunity, I guess, that we need to not waste. Well, there's an understanding gap, right? I mean, I, I think this is an area that, as, as organizations start to think about consumer engagement in the context of care model, well, is that a marketing function or is that a clinical operations function? And the fact of the matter is, it's both, right? How we engage consumers is important. And if you don't coalesce and derive a strategy around, this is going to be a sync. All of our communications are going to funnel through a touch point. You're going to confuse the patient, right? They're getting a text from their doc. They're getting a follow-up out of my chart. They're getting individual broad-based marketing communications from the marketing group, how do they know what matters and what's really relevant for them? And again, it, it, it's systematic of we haven't put we haven't put marketing in a role as health system leadership to say, this is explicitly how you can help. And this is how we're going to track value and giving the marketing leadership kind of that voice within the executive team to say, this is value creating and, and just setting that shared expectation. Here's what we can do. Here's how it ties back into those strategies. Next thing you mention here in the article is AI, machine learning, you know, that, that kind of category. So we just all need a chat bot and then everything's fine, right? <laughs> exactly. It's a solution to all of our problems. Yes. Yeah, it was really interesting. So in the current state, what we saw was very little change, interestingly, on AI and machine learning between the current state and the future. It was something that everyone kind of universally said, yep, we need to do stuff with AI. And so we asked, okay. Where should you be doing stuff with AI? And the only material difference is in the current state, we saw a pronounced pop in administrative functions, right? Let's focus on robotic process automation of the rev cycle. Let's try to automate manual processes that humans are doing today that they don't need to do. And a bit of a dip in the clinical setting. So people didn't see AI as a viable clinical support tool. It was really around administrative. The only difference between today and the future survey, when we asked people to think five years out, was those clinical initiatives on AI popped back up, and there was no difference. And so we looked at about 12 different areas of focus, and they all scored almost exactly the same. So we took that to mean, A, people haven't done the prioritization of where they're going to, going to invest around AI. And candidly, it doesn't feel like people really appreciate what it means to leverage AI, right? It's, it's very mm-hmm. much an unknown to the executives that we surveyed of how do we get value and return from this. 
which suggests maybe it shouldn't be the area they're focusing on if they don't know how it's going to create benefit. I think that's interesting because I think I'm wondering if you asked all the administrators who's talking to you about this, like how many of them would say it's, you know, marketing people coming back from conferences, <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> yep. and I'm, again, not sure that's helping the equation uh, exactly, but I think you're, I think you're exactly right. You know, along those lines though, whether it's, you know, in this case, AI or any sort of technology, we talk about, uh, investments, you know, or investing in digital and, and that kind of thing. And sometimes, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but this idea of digital transformation, you, you got a line in here about it. You know, that's not a, that's not a line item in a budget, right? So it's yeah. not like, Hey, okay, it's time to invest. What is that? What, what are most people on? Is it 10% of their budget? You know, and we're just putting some arbitrary number in there under digital transformation, quote unquote. And again, not doing ourselves a whole lot of favors. And so I, I think this idea that it has to be kind of a cultural shift is, is interesting. Yeah. And I think what we see a lot is people hear digital transformation and they, they over-index on digital. And when they think digital, they think IT, right? So this is about putting money into IT's budget. Let's, let's go invest there. And you know, the work we've done, we do a lot of business case development of laying out what's it going to take to get the results, to be able to get measurable return on investment. And if you take just purely the technology and software side of it, 90% of the investment is not technology or software. 90% of it is, you know, maybe there's IT resources and staff, but it's staff, it's process, it's organizational design, it's incentive models to be able to get people to do the work that needs to happen, whether it's a physician and thinking about how to change RVU comp models or whatever it is. Most of the work that needs to happen is not technology-related work. And so we always push clients Take the focus off of digital. Digital may be the means in which you you enable the transformation. Think about this as a journey around transformation. Look at the market context, look at your competition, and how do you transform your business to compete with that business? Because if we just sit here, we're going to lose all of these strategic contests that we're about to go play in, whether it's primary care against the new startups, whether it's hospital at home with Amazon launching, you know, being part of the founding group for policy advocacy in the home. Uh, and the, the, there are too many different threats. We have to pick which ones we're going to compete against and move quickly. And asking healthcare operators who are you know, running razor thin budgets and focus on a constantly changing competitive landscape on the traditional side to also figure out how to rebuild their entire business in parallel is just an unreasonable ask. And so to your point, it's not a line item thing. You do it and you're done. It's an organizational mindset around how do you focus on the areas you have to change and how do you resource that change internally to make sure it gets done and you move on to the next element of the change. This isn't a one and done transformation. This is catalyzing a way the organization works. I think that makes a ton of sense. Not real easy, but (laughs) (laughs) not easy. It it makes a ton of sense. Well, okay. So most people listening, I say most people, a lot of folks that are listening, marketing communication professionals in hospitals or in the healthcare, you know, sector, certainly what's something they should start thinking about something they should go do today, you know, conversations to be had. Where where do they go next? I mean, certainly we'll, you know, we'll link to these articles and things like that, but, but who else needs to know where can they kind of help be that, that catalyst for some of these conversations? Well, I think there is an education requirement amongst health system executives. They just don't understand it. And it's not unreasonable, right? Health system operators traditionally have not had to think about marketing. Our entire business strategy is we sit here, demand comes to us. 
And now as there's actually competition for demand, we have to think differently about how we get out there and get demand. And I think marketing and communications experts can bring a level of understanding, but we have to make sure that they're framing that understanding to a health system executive in terms that make sense to them, right? How are we going to drive more fee-for-service revenue? How does this get patient care that's not being served today, right? Or if we're in a value-based context, how can we use engagement strategies that are well-defined in the domain of marketing, you know, both within and outside of healthcare to better engage patients around the social determinants that everybody knows drives value-based outcomes? There's a lack of understanding of the competencies that live in the marketing departments in a lot of health systems. And so I think for every marketing executive, it's how do we position ourselves in that value context to the health system and take a role that is discreetly aligning and advancing those enterprise objectives? Man, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, again, excited to have Tom Keesaw from the Chartist Group on. As people have listened, if people want to reach out, want to connect, what's, what's the best way for them to do that? I mean, certainly LinkedIn is always an easy way to track me down. Um, the hardest thing is spelling my name correctly to be able to find me. But uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of vowels in that last name. But uh, the Chartist website is also a great place. It's got my contact information, phone, email, always responsive and, and happy to just have a discussion with folks. Awesome, man. I certainly appreciate it. And again, we'll link to all of these things, LinkedIn, the article that we referenced, uh, all that kind of fun stuff in the show notes. But uh, appreciate you coming on and look forward to having you back. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. Talk soon. Special thanks again to Tom for coming on the show. Certainly appreciate his time, thoughts, and ideas. Uh, really cool stuff. I would if you if you haven't, you can go over to, to the Chartist Group's website and sign up even for their weekly uh, news. It's uh, Chartist Top Reads. Anyway, some great great articles really bleed into this idea of transformation and digital front door and access strategies and things like that. So lots, lots of great thinking there. The TPS report, sign up for that over at touchpoint.health. Again, along with those five articles to start your week, also some quick links down at the bottom to upcoming conferences and educational opportunities. Keep those top of mind for you. And then we'll uh, do a couple of recommendations before we, uh, before we got here for this week. What, uh, what do you got today? Reed, I'm going to recommend something I picked up when I was in Boston. I went into, was right off of the campus of Harvard. Uh, It was sort of like where school products were. There were pens and pencils. And you would love this store because I know you love pens, right? And one of the things that really drew me in was their Colo bags, K-O-L-O. And if you go to colo.com, what they are are 100% organic cotton canvas and leather accented bags, a variety of different bags and backpacks, a variety of different things that you can get from from them, all different sizes. And they were really kind of cool. What struck me and the one I'm going to recommend because I picked it up is I'm always looking for that bag where you can put all your random cables Mm. and your power cords. And with Mac, you know, the power adapters are pretty big now. And I want to have it in something that's convenient and and kind of easy to access. And most of the bags I've been using are kind of more thin, like the pencil bags. The model is called the Parker and they're cube bags. They're they're different size cubes. So they have a large size, a long size, and then uh, a medium and also a small 
all different types of sizes. But if you can imagine if, you know, when they're fully filled up, they're the shape of like a cube or a rectangle, etc. And I found the medium Parker cube bag to be really, really helpful for me. It goes easily into my bag, you know, where I, where I keep my computer and stuff like that. If you really are high, you know, high on the tech and you need more room, the large bag is, is much bigger. It's about nine inches long. And the one I got was a four by four cube. And that's the medium size. It's really great. I would recommend uh, anybody who's looking for like any kind of bag to just throw stuff in. And they also do backpacks and totes and other things like that, too. Go out to colo.com and check it out. K-O-L-O.com. It's great, man. That's a great recommendation. I always always love to look at bags and think about new bags and stuff like that. So I have to go check that out. I'm going to recommend a show, which I know we've recommended before. I may have even recommended it, but... I'm actually going to recommend season two because it's only been out for a few weeks now, but it's Ted Lasso season two. Uh, I don't know. What were they? Four episodes in five episodes in something like that. Maybe anyway, great show. It comes out on Friday evenings. uh, So there's a new episode each week, kind of like you're used to from your growing up years. So anyway, if you haven't started it yet, there's a few built up there. If you want to binge watch them or whatnot, if you haven't seen season one, I mean, I highly recommend it. Certainly. Uh, but yeah, it's just a, it's a great, great show. A lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, Ted Lasso season two. We just started watching it. We wanted to kind of have some of them built up a little bit and we just started it last night. Just such a great show. Really, really good. Definitely worth funny. It is Mm -hmm. funny. So anyway, so check that out. Uh, certainly appreciate the support. Reach out to us. Love to hear from you. LinkedIn and Twitter is probably the best way to do that. Check out the show notes from today. If you'd like to connect with Tom, we'll have his links in there as well. Uh, certainly happy to help you track down any resources that you may hear of on the show that uh, maybe we didn't include in the show notes or a link or something like that. Uh, just feel free to reach out. Rate, review, subscribe, wherever you happen to be listening or streaming. And tell somebody about the show. It's still the number one way people find out about us. We certainly appreciate all the support. So for Reed Smith, I'm Chris Boyer, and we'll see you next week. (laughs) This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.